Jennifer DeFrades is a former high school teacher turned homeschool mom and Christian blogger. She blogs at heavennotharvard.com as well as themomapologist.com. She attended CIA with me, Cross-Examined Instructors Academy, uh, a couple of months ago. This was actually her second time attending. She's got a passion for apologetics, and she's great at just explaining different apologetic arguments. In this episode, we dive into her story and how she got into apologetics, which is just it's so good. I'm so excited for you all to hear it from her journey as be- being kind of a like cultural Christian to really facing you know her questions about faith. And we're going to talk about all of it and plenty more. So I hope that you enjoy. Please welcome Jennifer DeFrades. Welcome back to another episode of the Heaven and Health podcast. Today we have a special guest. We have Jennifer DeFrades here. Did I say it right? You just told me. Okay, great. Um, I had a chance to meet Jennifer at CIA a couple of months ago, and I'm so grateful that she agreed to be a guest on the podcast, and I'm really excited for you to hear her her story. Jennifer, welcome to Heaven and Health. Uh, Why don't you just tell the listeners a little bit about yourself and a little bit about your faith journey? Thank you so much for having me, Brittany. You are such a, a joyful person. It was so fun to meet you at CIA this summer. My faith journey is complicated. Um, I started with uh, Christian parents raised in a Christian home. My mom was a stay-at-home mom. She read us Bible stories over breakfast every morning. And I had everything set up kind of to be on that Christian path as a child. And Satan just did everything he could to throw wrenches into my path. And... um, I was raped in high school and that experience really derailed my faith in a lot of ways that I don't think I really understood because the pain of the experience, obviously, but I was also at the beginning of that purity movement and it was a date rape situation. So you feel responsible, you feel like it's your fault and it just kind of made me feel very separated from God and it created a dichotomy inside of my brain where my faith was a set of rules I had to follow and not a relationship with Jesus. And when you break that relationship and you don't have that connection anymore, the it doesn't make sense. And it's just things you're doing. And I really didn't even realize that my faith had shattered like that until I was um, in college and a lot of atheists You know, you get to college, I went to a secular school. A lot of my friends were super intellectuals and they had all sorts of really good objections to Christianity. And I didn't have the tools in my toolbox. I had a few measly little apologetics that I remembered from summer camp one summer when I was like 16, but it wasn't enough. And I felt my faith just kind of becoming this tiny little thing of maybe God exists, but I'm not really sure. And that's just not enough to combat the things that life throws at us. Right. And I walked away from my faith for a long time. And I would try to kind of come back and fail. And I would try to come back and I'd fail because I kept trying to clean up my own act. And it wasn't until I really understood God's grace 
that I realized I needed to come back and he would clean up my act. <laughs> like right. it, it wasn't on my shoulders because it was on my shoulders. I would have never have gotten here, but it took a long time. I was um, in my late thirties when we were going through the adoption process with my daughter. And every time we got a no or a door closed in our faces, I would pray because when do you, when else do you pray? Right. When you need something. Right. And God had never quite let me go. Like I could never just admit like I'm an atheist. So he'd always been there, but this was me coming back and going, okay, I know I've sinned. I've lived a wild life. And if I don't deserve to be a mom, like I understand, but you need to give me a different way to direct those feelings because I feel this like burning desire to be a mom. And when I would surrender like that, the door would open. It was like, we didn't have an agency. Then we did. We weren't sure how this long this process would go. And we got all the clearance. It was like door after door, after door, after door just opened up until the point that, um, I was praying because you don't know how long you're going to be on the list nowadays. It's not like the first person gets chosen. The birth mom gets to pick. And it was, it was so crazy. I had come home the night before after being on the list for just a couple of weeks, but your friends ask, have you heard anything? Have you heard anything? And of course you haven't, it's only been two weeks, <laughs> but it's heartbreaking because you don't know. It could be, you could have a baby the next day, you could be waiting five years. So how do you wait when there's no end? I mean, at least with a regular pregnancy, you know, nine months is pretty much the limit. You might go a week over, but the doctor's going to pull the plug on that, right? In an adoption situation, you don't know. So I, I remember just praying and finally saying, you know what, God, once the baby comes, everything changes. Let me just enjoy the waiting. Let me just enjoy this time of me and my husband. And he had two boys from his previous marriage, but let me just enjoy this time where it's just the two of us most of the time. And when the baby comes, it'll be a blessing, but I'll be patient. God had the last laugh on that. An hour and a half later, we got the phone call that we'd been matched. <laughs> wow. <laughs> yeah. And then she was early. So we only had about six and a half weeks to prepare. Wow. Yes. Wow. So that really started my journey back to having a faith in God because it wasn't that he gave me what I wanted, but it was that when I surrendered to his will for my life, that's when he said, okay, now I can trust you to raise this child. And I, but I realized in the process of raising her that I didn't really know as much as I thought I did. You know, I was raised by Christian parents. They read the Bible to us all the time. I had read the Bible, most of it, but there's another level of understanding who God is that I hadn't walked into yet. And yet I was starting to see glimpses of who God really was through parenting. I don't know if you've had that experience oh, yes. where you understand unconditional love and the need for rules and discipline at the same time. Mm -hmm. But I remember my daughter was running toward the swing set and the swing was still swinging because she had hopped off the swing to come share something with me and then was running back and she wasn't looking where she was going. But I could see the swing was about to hit her. And she looked back at me when I called her and told her to stop, like, 
I do what I want. I, what are you talking about, mom? And swing right to the forehead. And, you know, she wasn't injured. It was a few tears and a kiss and back to playing. But in my mind, I went, oh, that's what I look like to you, God. <laughs> I do what I want. And then the swing hits me in the forehead. And life had just hit me over and over and over again because I was living in rebellion to who God was, thinking that somehow God wasn't good, that he was holding back good things for me. And I needed to go after them for myself instead of living within his boundaries so that I could experience his goodness. Yeah, I think that's something that's hard for people to understand who are not Christians is that the boundaries that God has set in place to other people look like oppression to use secular terms they think that that it limits you and that it you know it it prevents you from living a a full life and all these things but once you do surrender and are obedient you see that by living within the rules that god has set out it actually creates freedom freedom from from all of it and that's such a hard thing to explain but i totally understand what you're saying i've experienced it as well and i think it is something that conceptually trips people up because though I think a lot of it is what you were describing earlier of religion being a set of rules and not understanding what it is to be in relationship with God. And that's something that people kind of stumble through, I think, until they really, it really clicks. Um, and I think as a young person, we, we understand rules and boundaries, but we also want to rebel against them naturally. Mm-hmm. And so I think for a lot of people, it does take, you know, trial and error and time and rebelling and seeing like, oh, God's way is actually way better. Even if it's years and years down the road, when you look back, you're like, oh, yeah, <laughs> that's it. Mm-hmm. Um, you can go ahead and keep going. I also wanted to ask quick, so was your husband an atheist? Was he a Christian? So that's actually the next part of my story. Okay. Because when God got a hold of me, I'm a natural teacher. Like that's just who I am. I think my first parent teacher conference in preschool, my preschool teacher told my parents that I had better lesson plans than she did. <laughs> so my career path was kind of set from the beginning. Um, so I, I actually did teach high school for 17 years, English and social studies before becoming a full-time stay-at-home mom. After we adopted my daughter, my husband was military. Um, We got stationed in Georgia at uh, Fort Benning, now Fort Moore. And I asked him, I said, man, I didn't wait this long to be a mom to put her in daycare. You know, we did that for the first two years because I already had a teaching job and adoption's expensive. So we wanted to save up money and build our savings back up. I said, but when we get orders, I'd like to stay home. And I started staying home, but man, that teaching bug just doesn't kind of leave. So I started writing a blog, Heaven, Not Harvard, about raising my daughter to follow Jesus, not necessarily the success of the world. And God really convicted me that if I was going to write about his word, I better know it a little bit better than I thought I did. So I started reading it and reading it like on fire. I read it three times all the way through in a year and a half. But something happens to you when you do that. It starts changing you. 
-hmm. It starts coming out of your mouth. It starts being how you do things. And my husband's response was kind of to pull back. What is happening to the woman I married? Because this wasn't, I mean, that was a cultural Christian ish Mm -hmm. when we were dating and married. Like it was a very superficial, we go to church. We went to church pretty regularly for a while, but not a lot. I mean, it wasn't, it wasn't something we lived. You know, it was be a good person, go to church. That's what Christianity is, right? That's not what Christianity is. And when God really got a hold of me, I started living this new life. And my husband responded by going the other direction. Mm. And he became an atheist. He started going down the atheist, the YouTube atheist wormhole on YouTube and the internet. And he actually threw objections at me that I had never heard before. Like, you know, we don't even have the original New Testament, right? I didn't know that. Mm -hmm. I was completely like, we don't? I guess I never thought about it. Like I just took it for truth. You know, I knew I had experiences that proved God was real. I'd been taught God was real, but to connect that with like skepticism and respond, I didn't know how to do that. He's like, yeah. And there are more mistakes in the new Testament than there are words. (laughs) I'm sitting there going, Hmm. Is everything believe a lie? So I go to Google and find out that he's right. We don't have the originals and there are more mistakes than there are words. Well, luckily God intervened in my Google search and sent me right to cold case Christianity. Yeah, there you go. (laughs) Your audience doesn't know Jay Warner Wallace. He's amazing. And the way his brain worked and connecting his detective skills with studying the New Testament was like, just made everything click for me. And I started seeing, well, yes, okay, we don't have the originals, but we have the copies that we know the chain of custody, who wrote each copy. We know that they were direct disciples of the disciples or disciples of the disciples' disciples, like that we know there's a straight line. All those mistakes are really textual variants that are basically like typos, you know, spelling mistakes or a scribe used Christ instead of Jesus, or used he instead of Jesus, those like little things. And then those got copied 20,000 times. So it was one mistake that was multiplied by copyists. None of the differences address any major doctrine like that isn't covered somewhere else. I think there might be one or two that address any doctrine at all that isn't covered somewhere else. And they're all very minor issues. So what we believe has been true and verified throughout history. And we have so many copies. That's why we have so many errors because we have more copies of the new Testament than any other ancient document that exists. So my husband was throwing out all these apologetic or skeptical questions. And I found apologetics and that's where my faith got bolstered and strengthened. And I kind of went down this rabbit hole, the other direction of reading every apologetics book I can get my hands on, listening to all the podcasts and just really following some of these great apologists and learning from them. Yeah, I think it's probably too, these were things that maybe you had even, some some of the questions or objections, you're like, 
maybe you at one point have even thought about that. I know I've experienced that too, but I just always believed that the Bible was true. And I believe that God was real. That was never really my hang up. Um, but when I was exposed to a lot of people who did not believe that the same thing sort of happened, it was like, oh, I realized I didn't know as much as I thought I did, even though same, like I grew up in, I grew up going to church and all of that, but it wasn't until I felt challenged that I was like, and for me, it was either, you know, walk away from the faith, which is what I did for a long time. I didn't even know what apologetics was. But then when I discovered that there were places to go to talk about this intellectually and, you know, that there were actually arguments against this, like, I didn't know that. But I think sometimes it takes a personal situation almost to feel like you have a reason to like to study it a little bit more deeply. And mm-hmm. I mean, what when your husband is a, a skeptic of it, I'm sure that was just like more motivation for you to feel confident in addressing the skepticism is, you know, I should know the answers to this stuff. Like, I do believe this is true, but I need to be able to explain it um, and feel confident in explaining it. Yep. I uh... Describe it as playing spiritual whack-a-mole because he would come and bring an objection and I'd find an answer and then he'd bring an objection and I'd find an answer. But then I always felt like I was playing catch up Hmm. and I realized I need to know this stuff is true for myself. And that's when I really started getting into the reading and the studying and learning and having kind of what I consider my four or five pillars that I can trace on my hands whenever I'm starting to doubt. God, are you real? I can still say, well, the cosmological argument is still true. The universe didn't create itself. The teleological argument is still true. The universe didn't design itself. We can't explain the origin of life. So evolution just doesn't make any sense. If we can't even get life from non-life, we can't have evolution. And the New Testament is so well documented and the resurrection so well documented that It just doesn't make sense that anything else explains the resurrection, which of course then allows us to believe in the Old Testament because Jesus quoted the Old Testament significantly. And then there's the moral argument. And we all know that there's at least one thing that is always right or always wrong. And if that's true, then there's a moral lawgiver who's established what is right and wrong. So those are my kind of five apologetics that I can walk myself through when I start to have doubts which I thought was preparing me to help bring my husband to faith. But um, he ended up succumbing to PTSD and committing suicide a couple years ago. Mm. And the night he committed suicide, I laid in bed at my neighbor's house because we couldn't be in the house. And you know, it's hard enough to sleep at somebody else's house, but in the midst of that tragic moment, like my whole world was completely shattered. I didn't know how to even process what had happened. I had been praying for my husband for years. I had people all over the world, literally, because in the military, you've got connections with people in Korea and Germany and Italy. And so literally people all over the world were praying for my husband. And this was what happened. And I laid in that bed and I walked myself through all of those five things. And I was like, okay, God, I know you're real. And I know I can trust you, even though I don't understand why this was the answer right now. And it started off being to save my husband. 
but I think in the end, the apologetics saved my faith because I don't know how anybody could walk through this kind of grief and this kind of pain without God. Yeah. I mean, I've heard people even say that a tragic situation, whether it be a loss, like something similar to what you experienced was the reason that they walked away from their faith actually, Mm -hmm. because they just couldn't understand how like things that I've heard is like, how could God let this happen? Mm -hmm. Um, You know, like this isn't fair. Just not being able to make any sense of it, obviously just because it's so painful. Um, And it actually, yeah, like they ended up walking away from their faith because of that, but that's not what happened in your case. Um, And I'm sure it was still very difficult. I mean, I'm, I'm sure. But the fact, like what you just described, how you were able to just repeatedly walk yourself through what you knew to be true over, and I'm sure some days it was like you needed to do it a lot because it was just, it hurt. Um, so can you talk a little bit about that? Like, I'm sure that maybe at the be- like maybe it was different at the beginning than it is now versus how you even think about it. But um, was there anything specific that really kind of helped you work through that? So um, one of the stories in the Bible that I really like kind of clung to was where the father goes to Jesus and says, you know, if you can, would you heal my son? And Jesus is like, if I can, you need to have faith. And he's like, I believe, Lord, help my unbelief. And that I kind of prayed that over and over again, because I know the Bible is very clear that God's economy is not our economy. The way he thinks about time and the events that happen and each is, is in the scheme of eternity. You know, he can see the ripple effect of everything that happens every day to every person and how it will balance out the scales in eternity for the people's souls that he loves. I had to say, okay, God, I don't know why you allowed this to happen. Help my unbelief, you know, help me believe and trust in you. Help me see your goodness, despite the fact that this hurts. You know, Romans 8, 28 says that all things work together for the good of those who believe. That doesn't mean necessarily that we're going to get everything we want. We don't get everything healed and perfect. But what it means is that God will take these horrible tragedies and use them for good. Like, I never thought God could redeem being raped in high school. But there were several girls that I could recognize the signs of what they were facing and get them help Hmm. because I'd been through it. So I knew that God could do that for even this situation. So I just kept asking him, show me how to be faithful. You know, Joseph in Genesis was sold and beat up, sold into slavery by his brothers, then kind of rose to power and got accused of being sexually um, assaulting his owner's wife, then thrown into prison. Then eventually he gets raised up to be second in command of all of Egypt because he never stopped being faithful, even though he was in the, he had to be in the depths of despair. He had to feel completely abandoned. He lost his family. He lost his homeland. Then he lost any respect or friends that he had made in the new land of Egypt. 
but 20 years go by and he still is being faithful. And I thought that story gives me hope that God will use my faithfulness, even if it's hard, even if it hurts. So I just kind of kept trusting that God would do that for me and would ask him, can you show me like just little things to let me know you're listening. Let me know you're there. Let me know that you're redeeming this. And he did, you know, just little things like um, a, a random prayer request that I, I wouldn't have thought was that important. I wanted my daughter to have a birthday party. You know, when my husband passed away, there's lots of paperwork with a military death and the government's not super quick to start handing out benefits. You've got to jump through a lot of hoops and we just weren't sure where money was going to come from for a little while. And I was like, God, if I could just have enough to throw her a birthday party, that would help her not feel like her childhood ended because of her dad's death. I was like, I know it's silly. It's a little thing. Later that day, a friend of mine, I got that little text message from Venmo that a friend had sent me $500 with happy birthday to my daughter. And I thought, well, her birthday's not even for a month. So that was a really early birthday present. And there was way too many zeros. <laughs> I, I was like, um, there's too many zeros in that. And she said, no, God told me to pay for her birthday party. Wow. Same day. Yeah. Not somebody I was like talking to every day. She would, I, I didn't even know I was going to pray for that that day. I had just gone for my walk, morning walk and was praying random things. And that kind of came to my heart. So it was like, I didn't think about it. I didn't tell anybody I'd prayed for it. And God answered that prayer within less than like five hours. Yeah. And somebody who specifically said, God told me to pay for this. So I was like, okay, God. You know, has everything been smooth sailing? Absolutely not. But that gave me hope that I know that God's listening, that God is caring about the little things that are going on in my life, that I know that God is redeeming this story, even though I can't see all the ways that he will yet. Yeah. You know, suicide is a topic that isn't getting better. If you look at the mental health statistics for our youth, the numbers are skyrocketing. We need people in the church talking about suicide and being honest about it. And if I can be part of that, then maybe my story will save somebody else from going through this or comfort somebody else who is going through this. And if it can do that for one other person, then I feel like that's an answer to prayer. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I'm so appreciative for you sharing this story. I know that Suicide is really tragic and I, it needs, people need to hear a Christian perspective on it. Um, just like everything else, you know, we need to be talking about these things as a church um, so that people don't go looking for secular answers to a lot of this because we know that the world explains things really differently and has different reasons for things and puts their faith in different things and as Christians, the ability to speak to these really tough issues is is so important. So I'm so grateful for that. One question I had for you was, you know, obviously you are um, an apologist, 
but you had a young daughter when this happened. So were you able to, you know, obviously she needed comfort and love and all of that, but also an explanation as to, you know, the, the situation. So were you able to, you know, explain some of the, some of the things that were happening using like apologetics types of arguments or like, how did you help her make sense of this from like a Christian perspective as a, as a kid? That is still a journey we're walking through. You know, she was 10. Okay. Um, and now she's 13. So her understanding of things is developing. Um, a child's grief is very different than an adult's grief. And a lot of times kids get very angry because anger feels like you're doing something, whereas grief just kind of feels like this big gaping hole inside of you. So we are dealing with it. But basically, I keep telling her the process that I'm going through. I felt like grieving in front of her was very important, mm -hmm. not in the sense of being overly dramatic or allowing the grief to derail me, but taking the time when I really needed to cry and just crying to say, man, I miss your dad right now and letting that be a truth. And then you pick yourself up, dust yourself off and go make lunch. Like that's just how we do it. And she would sometimes struggle with being angry. She's still very angry about losing her dad. She's not sure how it makes sense. And one day she's like, I just don't know if I believe in God. And I said, can you explain how the universe got here? No. So, well, until you can, God is real. And we just have to deal with that. We don't understand why he allowed this. Yeah. And we can pray. We can ask him. You can tell him that you're upset. You can tell him that you're angry. It is not a surprise. He knows your every thought. So it's okay to communicate with him. We don't want to be disrespectful. You know, God is a holy and perfect God, but he is not surprised by our anger. He is not surprised by our pain. And it's okay to go to him and say, I do not understand. Please help me understand. Please walk with me through this pain. You know, I can't tell you the number of nights I just asked Jesus to just hold me so that I could sleep because the pain was so much. You know, there were months of just trying to figure out how do you survive feeling like you've lost half of yourself and how to move forward. And then watching your child go through this level of grief, I think it was even harder. So she is in my apologetics class that I teach to our homeschool co-op. <laughs> she has all the answers. She knows the answers. But again, she has to choose to make them true inside of herself. Like she has to accept that and have that relationship with God. And I think she does. But she's still that very young, emotional teenager who has to like grapple with big feelings. And we talk a lot. I don't know if um, you've heard of Shanda Fulbright with her Faith Inspires podcast. So Shanda and I met the year before at CIA and she talked about emotionalism mm -hmm. and how we have to train ourselves that our feelings are real but they don't get to be in charge and how we deal with those. So we, we talk through those kind of issues a lot that you're allowed to feel whatever you feel, but we always take it to God and let him help us process, let him help us deal, let him help us walk through it because otherwise 
we end up being very destructive or we end up making poor choices in the heat of the moment. And we don't want to do that. We don't want to make it worse because we're having a moment where things are painful, you know? And I think a lot of the healthy thing for her has been showing her that it hurts and showing her to cry and to not just bottle it all up because she tend kids tend to do that. Mm-hmm. You know, where you think kids would be more apt to cry than adults, they actually are less apt often to cry because they're not, pro- they don't process the grief the same way. So getting her to a place where she can cry and kind of acknowledge that this is hard and that this is sad, at least has helped her kind of start opening those wounds to God and allowing him to work in those tough places. But it's still a journey. And I'm, I'm just trying to walk with her because... You know, as, as Sean McDowell talks about when he had doubts in his faith, his dad's response was go, okay, search for truth. I know yeah. where you'll end up. Yeah. So I'm trying to have that attitude. Sometimes it's easier said than done when I'm it's sure. your child. <laughs> sure. But I, I keep trying to say, look, I, I searched. I searched and searched for truth. And everywhere I searched, I ended up back at God is real. I, I don't know how you'll deal with the pain. But I know where truth, seeking truth will end you in God's hands. So I just kind of try and keep that kind of calm perspective that gives her maybe some stability and some security that I'm not afraid of her questioning. I'm not afraid of her feelings. God isn't either. And we're both going to walk with her through this process. Yeah. And I think it is such a, a powerful thing for her to see you modeling it in real time and like you said it's not you know never letting her see you cry or like pretending like everything's okay which I think sometimes that's an accusation against Christians of you're just living in fairy tale land where everything's you know nothing is you know nothing bad like you know we, we see this all the time this argument all the time when that's not what's happening as a Christian, we we just think about things differently. We approach things differently, and we still experience emotions and all of that. But we don't we don't think that our feelings, our emotions, and our responses are the ultimate end all be all. We know that it is not in our hands at the end of the day. And I think that something that for like for myself, we were talking about you know growing up and all this like seeing someone actively live out their faith through hard times can really strengthen the faith of others. And so like, I hope that's an encouragement to you, like you going through this and staying close to the Lord. I mean, like, obviously, like you said, there are bad days and bad moments and all that's not easy, but for someone to see you live out your faith still in the midst of like something tragic is, is a great opportunity to point others to Jesus. And, you know, as tragic as situations may be, like that is one way I think that God can redeem them because it points other people to him. It's not necessarily just about the stuff that you're going through, even though he can help you through that, but you just praying to him, like, God, help me, like, help me sleep, help me do this, help me do that. And allowing yourself to share that with others is just, it's amazing. And I love that, you know, your daughter can see that and, you know, see you live that out every single day and be like, yeah, mom's like a real person. (laughs) Like she's not like a, 
stone wall that, you know, she's just easily going through this because she's a Christian or whatever. Um, which, yeah, I just, I hear that accusation all the time. And I'm like, that's not really accurate though. Just because we have a different perspective on things doesn't mean that we ignore the reality of really tragic situations. Um, well, and I think it's um, a Western thing because people in third world nations, people in places that where they're like missionaries are on the front lines, there is suffering. Yeah. I've, I've recently kind of binging on missionary stories um, during my workouts, because sometimes it's easier to have a, a narrative story mm-hmm. than be trying to absorb apologetics facts. <laughs> and I came across a beautiful book that I had never heard of called Evidence Not Seen. And it's about Darlene Dibler Rose. And she was a missionary in the Philippines during World War II and got taken captive by the Japanese. And listening to her faithfulness as she's being you know, mistreated at best and tortured at worst and seeing how her faithfulness changed hundreds of lives, literally changed the outcome of probably hundreds of thousands of people by now because each person has descendants and family members and like her impact, not by having a perfect life, not by having all of her things solved. She was still beaten. But when you can be beaten and then turn around and pray for the man who beat you, changes people. You know, some of her captors became Christians because of what she went through and how she handled it. And that's true for so many missionaries, so many of the early persecuted church that were being thrown to lions in the middle of the Colosseum. And when people watched the way they faced that death, they became Christians. It was like the exact opposite of what Satan had intended happened. It, Christianity spread like wildfire when people saw the joy you can have facing the most horrible circumstances because you know the Lord. Mm-hmm. And I just don't think there's any anything that compares. My life is far from perfect. I am not perfect. Raising a teenage daughter with big feelings especially through what we're going through is not easy and I don't get it right all the time, but God's grace is sufficient and he is walking me through it. He is putting people in my path that challenge me, convict me, inspire me. And I've learned so much in the last couple of years about what my faith really can look like when I'm truly leaning into who God is every single day that I might not have known. In fact, If my husband hadn't become an atheist, I don't know that I would have a real faith like I do now because it challenged me to grow and to understand what I believe and why I believe it. You know, if you asked me for my doctrine on something, I have an answer, except eschatology. Don't ask me on eschatology. (laughs) I'm not sure how it's all going to pan out in the end, but it will. That's that's my theory. That's it. I feel the same way. I feel the same way. But apologetics teaches you how to search for truth, even within Christian doctrine. Like, why do we believe that we baptize babies or adults? Like, where would we find that in the scripture? And focusing in on who God is, like when they talks about slavery in the Bible. I mean, that's an objection that a lot of people have. And they go, why does the Bible endorse slavery? Apologetics has an answer. And that answer is that the word slave didn't mean the same thing. They were bond servants. 
And the picture of a bond servant is someone who has turned their lives over to somebody else because they need them to care for them, whether through debt or because they committed a crime or simply because there's a circumstance that they don't have anywhere to live. Bond servanthood was a picture of, I surrender my life to you. You will feed me. You will clothe me. You will house me. You will give me work to do. And that's the picture of who we are in Christ. Like we turn our lives over and go, we, I can't. I can't take care of myself. And God says, I will feed you. I will clothe you. I know what you need. And then he gives us good things to do. Yeah. That's not the kind of slavery we think of. But if yeah. I hadn't heard apologetics, I wouldn't have known that that's what slavery means in the Bible. That chattel slavery, like we think about it in America, is actually forbidden. If you kidnap someone to make them a slave, it was punishable by death. And I don't think a lot of people know the scriptures like that until you sit down and you study it all together. And my faith has grown so much because of that, that I just feel like the Lord really worked in circumstances that could have really derailed me, but grew me instead. Yeah. You know, I think it's so interesting you say that because, I mean, people who are not Christians will use the Bible against Christians. Because they know a random verse, right? We see this all the time. We see scripture weaponized, but it's taken out of context. And I find that it often just ignores the character of God. It's like, even if you took this one passage that you cherry picked and took it for its literal meaning and whatever, what about the rest of the Bible? Like, what what about the character of God overall? And when we argue about, you know, certain hot button issues, I often come back to that because I don't think people always think through it. I know you presented um, an argument against abortion at CAA. I didn't get to see your talk, but you wanted to present it without arguing, I believe was your thing. And Mm -hmm. this is, that's a topic that I often see this is, is the abortion argument and someone will cherry pick a Bible verse, but then... I'm like, okay, but what about the character of God throughout the rest of the Bible? And do you really think that he'd be okay with this? Like if when you really think about it, and I often just come back to that and how studying apologetics and studying scripture and being able to really understand, even like what you just set up, the differences between the terms and like how we think of chattel slavery now and how that's not the same as how it appears in the Bible necessarily. Like People just don't know that. And if you don't know, you can't argue against it. So I just, I think it's such a powerful tool in our toolbox. It's great. Like it's great to have, have faith and to be saved. Yes. But in order to really be able to share the gospel effectively, especially in today's culture, I just, I think it's so Mm -hmm. important to be able to do more than that, than to just say like, yes, I'm a Christian. That's hard enough. Like it's hard enough to stand up and say you're a Christian, but to really defend your beliefs is, is difficult. So it's yeah. like one of the arguments I hear a lot is numbers five. People will say, oh, this teaches girls how to have an abortion. It's like, please read this in context. It's a ritual that was supposed to protect women from husbands who wanted to divorce them unfairly. So if a woman was suspected of being unfaithful, he could take her to the priest who would then mix holy water and dust from the Holy of Holies and make her drink this bitter water. And and if 
she had been unfaithful, she would get sick and she'd have all these symptoms that would prevent her from having children. And some other things we don't really understand, her thigh would fall away. Like we don't know what that means. But first, the woman wasn't pregnant in the scenario. So it's not an abortion. Two, I'm, I've drank out of a garden hose. Drinking dirty water will not do anything to you unless there's a supernatural act of God. Like there was an aspect of this that had God had to act supernaturally to cause anything to happen to her. So it was a protection for women. It's not a tutorial on how to do an abortion. It's not an endorsement of an abortion. It literally says it would prevent her from becoming pregnant, not cause her to lose a pregnancy. So when people cherry pick stuff like that and they don't really know what they're saying, it's important for Christians to understand because that can derail you. If you've never heard someone walk through that passage before and somebody says, oh, the Bible teaches you how to do an abortion and you just read the passage without having some of the context. And, you know, as a history teacher, I've learned some of that. I taught a women in history class and understanding how women were treated in other cultures helps me understand what that passage was really doing was God was protecting women so that husbands couldn't claim infidelity and then get rid of them to marry a younger woman. Like it was God's way of making sure that his rules for governing our behavior protected the weakest members of society. And I don't think people always see that. Like Hebrews had rules for how you could treat your bond servants. If you knocked out their tooth, you had to set them free. Like nowhere else was there treat rules about how to treat your slaves. Mm -hmm. They were property everywhere else. Only in Israel, pretty much, were you required to treat them fairly, kindly set them free every seven years and give them clothes and food and equipment and things to go be successful in life. That wasn't the case anywhere else. So understanding all that context, you know, for abortion or slavery and some of these hot button issues is really important because the biggest question we're seeing in apologetics right now is not, is this stuff true, but is God really good? Mm-hmm. And if we can't explain how our God is good, like some of the stories of genocide where God orders the destruction of all these people, people go, how could God order the destruction of an entire people group? Well, if you don't understand, first of all, how evil those people were and what they were doing, they were killing their own infants and torturing them and burning them to death alive in order to, to get things from their gods if you don't understand like the debauchery and like just the treachery the evil that there was going on people say well if there was a good god wouldn't he stop all this evil but then when he stops the evil they're like well he can't be a good god because he killed like yeah yeah so understanding that god was patient he allowed the hebrews to be close to them to show them how they should live and they kept sinning, they kept being evil, and they got worse and worse and worse till God said, okay, I, I've got to punish you now. Yeah. And a lot of times he did it in increments. You know, it wasn't like all of a sudden he just destroyed them. It was warnings, and then they didn't turn. So it, when we understand that, we can say, look, God was good. He did stop this. Maybe it didn't happen the way you would have thought that it was good. 
but we're not God. Right. And God understands things that we don't understand. You know, I think, yes. And I, I, yes, that's, that was so good. And I think that, you know, I think a cultural conversation around this is embedded within, and that's this idea that this almost like victim mentality type of thing is that nothing can everything happens to you and it's never a result of free will or decisions that you made mm-hmm. yourself. And I think that kind of line of thinking bleeds into this conversation like you were just saying, because people can't wrap their minds around that because the way that they think about how things happen, it's that like, this was a result of this. This is why someone does this. This is the mm-hmm. reason when, as Christians, like we believe that there is a, a moral good and that there is, that there is also evil. But if you don't believe that, I can understand why people are like, I just don't get it because they don't believe that that even exists. So it's like, like you're saying, like we need to convince them first, like, yeah, this is a problem. This is a problem, but that doesn't mean that God isn't good. This is, there's still going to be bad things that happen. It doesn't negate his goodness. And also we, we just can't know everything because we're not God, even though, you know, sometimes we try to be, we try to, you know, hoist, hoist ourselves up and serve the God of self, but it doesn't work. And as Christians, we don't believe that to be true. So I do think that as a Christian, being able to speak to that, like, like exactly what you just said is, is just so important. Um, well, I think we also have this idea that bad, bad things are just bad. Instead of that, sometimes good things come because of bad things. Like you're into fitness and being healthy. In order to get healthy, you've got to do hard stuff. Right. Like you don't go out. I mean, I used to run half marathons and I didn't go out and run a half marathon the first time I went out to run. I ran 30 seconds. Like literally I ran 30 seconds and then I walked three minutes. Then I walked, ran 30 seconds. Then I walked three minutes. It took me five months to be able to go from that to running 13 miles. Mm -hmm. Like it wasn't an overnight process. You know, I've had hip surgeries that have completely trashed my left hip and I have had to work really hard. Four surgeries on one hip. I've been sat down in a brace for years of my life. Wow. And I thought, God, what are you doing? But he showed me so many things about how to be a wife and a mother, even when I couldn't cook and clean, how to, how to be a friend when I couldn't get off the couch. I said, God, show me how I can be useful to you like this. Cause I can I barely get to the restroom by myself. And I would have random strangers messaging me in the middle of the night, asking for prayer, asking a question about the Bible. I mean, it was like, God was sending me answers of how I can still serve. And our culture has this idea that every bad thing is bad instead of sometimes those obstacles are really the stepping stones you need to grow. And if you don't, if you let yourself get stuck, this is just a bad thing instead of, I need to learn how to overcome. I need to learn how to get stronger, or I need to learn how to deal with this process. It's something so that you can be ready for the next challenge you're not ready for the next challenge. You know, it, we see this in parenting all the time. You let your kids make little mistakes so that they will figure out the lesson. Oh, 
check your pockets before they your clothes go in the laundry if you don't want all your clothes to be covered in gold slime, right? <laughs> Little mistakes we we learn things from. You know, God's not an evil God. He's a God that wants us to learn appropriate lessons because he's preparing us to spend eternity in his presence. Mm -hmm. And he's got good things for us to do. If you study your Bible, you'll see that heaven is not going to be sitting around on clouds, just playing harps. Like God is going to create a new world and a new heaven. And we are going to have jobs. We're going to have things to do. And he is preparing us to embrace whatever those roles may look like. And, and preparing us to be just so excited about spending eternity with him. Mm -hmm. Because I think there were definitely times in my life where the idea of spending forever in heaven sounded super boring. And I was like, <laughs> why would anyone want to do this? Yeah. They didn't understand, like truly get loving God and just wanting to like run into his arms and embrace him. And that's part of this process. Like he wants to build us up and bring us to that closeness with him so that we are ready to be in his presence for eternity. So good. So good. Uh, Jennifer, before we go, will you just tell the listeners where they can find you, where they can read your stuff, all of the good things that I'll make sure I also list these in the show notes too. So I've been uh, doing a little bit of guest writing with Mama Bear Apologetics. So they can check out some of Mama Bear's blogs. Um, I've done a few for them. I have two blogs. One, I really just started before my husband passed away and Obviously, I've stepped back from some of those things, but I do have a blog, The Mom Apologist, and I've got a few posts up there and I'm working on some new content. And you can find me on Facebook as The Mom Apologist, all one word, and on Instagram and Twitter. Well, X. I, ha I haven't gotten used to calling it X yet. Formerly known as Twitter. <laughs> right. And I also have a parenting, uh, Christian parenting, Christian life, marriage kind of blog on um, that's called Heaven, Not Harvard. And that grew out of realizing I needed to raise my daughter to go to heaven, not necessarily Harvard. I mean, she could do both if she really wants to, but I want to raise her to know Jesus more than be successful in the world's eyes. So I'm also, you can find me on Facebook uh, X and Instagram at heaven, not Harvard as well. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for being a guest on heaven and health. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it.